Welcome to Sportin' Live. Introducing your host, Ed Draper. Hello, how are you? Welcome along to the podcast Sport and Life. Ed Draper with you. Usually try and do one podcast a week, bonus one this week. For a little while, I've been uh, dwelling and and meaning to speak to a regular guest on the podcast over the past two and a half years, John Palmer, who is a local journalist to me in Cheltenham, but also a fantastic lecturer. I think he's a fantastic lecturer, according to some of the students I've spoken to over years, but a good uh, a good man covering uh, the local club, Cheltenham Town. He's got a book out about their season last year, so we're going to get to John in just a second. But talking uh, of Cheltenham Town, one of their sponsors is the main sponsor of the podcast, big support, and I really appreciate their uh, investment in in the podcast as well over the past year or so. Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV. They are specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands providing solutions based around high-quality customer service and installations. Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham House, not far from me, in the beautiful courtyard in Montpellier, Cheltenham. Obviously, stop the wonderful Bang Olufsen equipment, but do stress that through that company, Serene AV, and a sister company, if you like, they can source you whatever equipment fits your vision, your budget, and they'll uh, they'll look into that through a consultation process. Get in touch with them on the website, Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham. Get the number for Jason Briggs and his fine team, or indeed social media, BNO underscore Cheltenham, I believe is their address. And on Instagram, they'll document a lot of the equipment as well, particularly the Bang Olufsen equipment. And thank you to Cytoplan as well, food-based supplement company for their association with the podcast. My father, Dr. Mark Draper, who is a general practitioner, GP doctor here in the UK, and also a micronutritionist, has been working as a consultant for Cytoplan, spurred largely by his conviction that supplements are, are required due to a variety of reasons, but particularly the soil degradation in the UK under industrial farming and what's actually in the food that we produce in terms of nutrients, notwithstanding a debate over organic and chemicals and things like that, but just what's in there in terms of trace elements like selenium and zinc in particular are big interests for him. So we take a, a multivitamin from Cytoplan, have done for 20 years. The current incarnation of that is a product called Immune Complete. As an adult male, I take Immune Complete 2, but there's a whole raft of specific supplements. Immune Complete 2 has more than enough vitamin D3, and I know vitamin D3 is best absorbed, vitamin D3, you'll call it if you're in the States, best absorbed through sunlight exposure, but obviously that's difficult at times in the UK. I was looking actually into sunbeds and, and the benefits of that, and it does stimulate because of the UV rays vitamin d3 production more similarly to natural light and i've hopefully talked to my dad about this on the podcast in due course but the downside there of course is there's um, skin aging and can be some detrimental effects of of some beds tanning beds you may know them as so the supplements is the way i go for that but there's obviously other supplements you can take like selenium unique bespoke specific supplements on the Cytoplan website. And if you go there, cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk, if you are looking to optimize your immunity, if you're entering the winter months, all those respiratory conditions, not least COVID-19 around at the moment, then you can uh, do so with a discount because the code is DRAPER10R at checkout on the website, D-R-A-P-E-R, my last name, the numerals one zero 
and the capital letter R. So great to speak to fellow journalist John Palmer, who's just come out of a lecture and going back into a lecture after this as we recorded it today, Friday. He is uh, then going to Cheltenham Town against Shrewsbury tomorrow. Cheltenham, a League two, League One sorry, club, which is the third tier of English football, my local club, and uh, building on a historic season last year. And he's got a book out about that. And he's, as I say, a rounded character, a great historian of the local area, particularly the sporting side of it. The one and only John. John Palmer, welcome back to the podcast. We were just debating pre-hitting the record button whether uh, I should do a video arm of this for, for YouTube or whatever format, because you are uh, in a beautiful spot on Park Campus at the University of Gloucestershire there. <laughs> how, how, how are you doing? How's, uh, how are tricks? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks, Ed, and and thanks very much for having me on again. I've just done a couple of relax, laps of the lake at Park. It's um, good. Use, useless fact for you: it's the shape of Africa. Um, the the lake is designed as the shape of Africa, and it's got a path around the edge, the shape of an elephant. From oh, wow. uh, the part, it was it was designed as a zoological gardens, and that's why the that's why the you got the Africa Lake and the elephant path. So useless fact, but I'm sat right next to the African shaped lake at the moment. All right, I've wondered, yeah, I've, wondered, I've wondered around there. I didn't know. I didn't know what it was. It was it someone from Africa who designed it? Was that or was it just a coincidence? It was all to do with the animals they were planning on bringing in when it was designed as a zoo. So I think they would have obviously had all sorts, all sorts of um, range of animals, including elephants and things like that. And I think it was sort of just a themed, a themed lake. Um, so you can actually see as you walk around it is vaguely the shape of africa <laughs> fantastic well i thought you were just a journalism lecturer but now you've uh, you brought some real <laughs> some history and some zoological knowledge i love it i love it it's fantastic um jo john how 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 are tricks you, you're putting some serious reps aren't you as a lecturer you're saying yesterday what are you doing like sort of six hours a day at the moment yeah it's a busy time so i've, I've just come out of a three-hour lecture with one group um i'm lecturing another group this afternoon for three hours different different topics different different year groups but um yes yeah, it's, it's good it's it's the uh, busiest time of year, I'd say, between now and Christmas. You know, we got into the swing of things at the start of term. Everyone's settled in. We're getting some of the key sort of learnings in now. And then, obviously, it all it all breaks up for Christmas. But there's work for them, the students to hand in before Christmas. So they're, they're all gearing up for that. Bit of a Christmas break. And then we, we go again for the semester two, which runs from January to, to the summer. So, yeah, it's, it's a busy time of year. But it's, you know, it's, it's really enjoyable. And, and obviously, the football season's in full swing. Yeah, so there's loads going on, but it, they complement each other well, and yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, how do you how, how does that balance work then with with games? Presumably away games. I know we're at Cheltenham at home tomorrow, but there's some lengthy trips, isn't there? I know Bolton's coming up in the in the Manchester area, but that's a weekend game. How does the midweek games fit with the the lecturing responsibilities? Yeah, I'm pretty lucky really because the the university are very flexible. I've often got students with me at games, so on Saturday I'll have two first year sports journalism students with me in the press box just watching what I do, I'll talk them through my typical match day. I'll give them a couple of little tasks to complete during yeah. and after the game so they get that in, in press box experience. And then away games, uh, there's, a, there's a group of final year students that are helping out the club uh, as, as media interns. So they're going to be involved throughout the season. So that's brilliant for them. I can normally get to pretty much every game um, with my timetable at the moment. I'm not in teaching on a Tuesday late afternoon, so I can normally get away. So I am fine for Gillingham next week and very lucky that you know the, the, the timetable fits in but there, there there might be times where teaching has to come first and I won't be able to get to a game but at the moment they they sort of they seem to fit in quite well with each other and there is that flexibility and and the, the awareness that being still a practicing sports journalist is massively advantageous to the students as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the, the, the areas, I suppose, if you're teaching mathematics or whatever, people wouldn't expect you to have an accountancy job. But I think for for, for media, it's, it, that relevancy is, is really significant, isn't it? Because as we've talked about before in the podcast, it's such a, a fast moving landscape, the media, the media industry. Yeah, absolutely right. We've got we've got a first year student that's got something like half a million followers on TikTok. Whoa. And there'll be another there'll be another app coming out soon that nobody's heard of at the moment that everyone will be using soon. And that's, yeah. it's changing, changing rapidly, as you said. It, ne- it never stands still, but it's, it seems to be accelerating at the moment. And yeah, the way that people consume, and it's, it's mad. Yeah, and there's still, I know there's been data concerns over the, the ownership of TikTok and, and where that data goes, but it's inter- it, the evolution of that platform, because I thought that was just about dancing and singing and people like Gordon Ramsay sort of miming along to songs with their teenage daughters. But actually, it's become a, a content, a video content interview place as well, hasn't it? Which I've, I've seen is fascinating development over, what, the course of 12 months? There's a duck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very noisy. But yeah, I think some apps start off with something like TikTok did, which was known for, you know, miming to, you know, miming to songs or miming to famous people doing interviews and then starts to get a bit of, of sort of massive, well, massive following, starts to get a bit of traction. And then they will adapt. Like, like Snapchat is now where a lot of young people message each other rather than okay. using the old, old school text messaging or even Facebook Messenger or Twitter DMs. They will be constantly in touch via Snapchat, which wasn't designed as a, an instant messaging app. It was designed no. as a photo that disappears app, but it's, it's it's got that additional option now and it's, it seems to take hold. But there, there's always something new around the corner that, that everyone will migrate to. And it's fascinating watching them trying to stay relevant. Yeah, what do they send? Do they send videos to each other then on Snapchat or is it text? I, I'd say typically they'll be chatting to each other via text, but they'll also attach photos of where they are, what they're doing. So it's very much multimedia. A way of staying in touch with people and there's a lot more options for editing the appearance of, of graphics emojis that sort of thing so you can liven it up rather than just a traditional text um voice messaging rather than text messaging is also massively developing i think that's the way young people want to talk to each other now not sending maybe a sentence or two of text it's, it's a voice little short voice memo that they will send to each other that's yeah something that's happened over the last couple of years as well and it's you know it's going to be interesting to see what you know we, we we're sat here now we could be chatting on the phone on audio on zoom on video on any number of different platforms um yeah. and they're all they're all vying for that you know that massive share of the market but tiktok has certainly been the the fastest growing recently but um and snapchat probably has had its peak but it's still very much used by the younger generations to, to stay in touch with each other almost like continuously i would say and those messages disappear on snapchat today is that still the case yeah 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 all, all very transient yeah. yes yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. So many platforms. I mean, it's just managing it. And I guess within your work group or, or friendship group, kind of di- deciding which platform you do it on, because it's all very similar. It's all, all about quality of communication at the end of the day. But it's if you're trying to, comp- I think, manage your life through all the different platforms, it can be a, a real challenge, at least at least for me, as I'm, I'm getting older in the background there. It's funny because I'm just hearing those quacking ducks. Reminds me of Ed the Duck in the broom cupboard as a kid watching <laughs> the BBC. So it shows, yeah. shows you how old, um, how, how old I am. But it's um, it's interesting on that note, talking about the 90s and, and, and growing up, uh, all your dreams are made. Oasis lyric, but the name of your, your Cheltenham Town history book about the the um the history making 20 2021 season john it's been out for a, a little while tell us about that what a brilliant link that was from ed the duck 90s to oasis to Cheltenham town that was a hey, seamless link but... i'll come in and teach future students <laughs> about that yeah, this is it uh, many years of reps this beautiful segue <laughs> yeah but the book has we're, we're really pleased with uh, how it's gone so far so um the idea was was sort of born near the start of the last season so 
we, we spoke at the Literature Festival a couple of weeks ago and we said that we, we were going to do a book whether Cheltenham had won the league, whether they'd had the Man City game. We wanted to do something to sort of mark what was such an unusual season for everyone, whether it was yeah. for the players, whether it was for the fans who couldn't be there for the vast majority of the season or whether it was the media that were just sat there watching games in uh, empty stadiums. We, we decided we wanted to put something into print that would give people that sort of lasting memory. But it just so happened that it turned out to be one of Cheltenham's, well, arguably Cheltenham's best ever season. And mm-hmm. so that made it even better. But we were, we, it was sort of the idea, we came up with the idea on the motorway. Me, the, the media and comms manager at the club, Richard Joyce, and the associate director, Murray Toms. It was the three of us driving to an away game last season. Sometimes we had to travel separately because of COVID, but other times we were allowed to travel together. And we, we, we just said, right, we're going to, let's, let's do one. Let's, whatever happens this season, let's, let's put something together for the fans. And Murray is an expert in crowdfunding. That's what he does for a living. So that's how we mm. decided to fund it. And so we knew uh, we'd sold enough copies before we'd even produced the book. So that took the pressure off sales, but obviously then it put the pressure on doing a good job of it. So that, that was the sort of order, order that things happened. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, it's interesting you, you speaking to the club executives like that, and they are they're good people down there at Cheltenham, but how do you balance that relationship? I know you've previously been press officer, so you've been on the, the club side of, of it with Cheltenham, but for, for young reporters out there, that's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Is balancing your objective role now as a, a reporter for Gloucestershire Live and indeed a, a lecturer with that connection with, with, with the club and, and sort of maintaining that relationships how, how do you develop that is it about transparency about what your role is and, and communicating with the club yeah I think it's a massive part of its communication I remember when the first day I got offered the Cheltenham Town reporting job long long time ago my editor Ian Mean said good luck John you'll do a great job but you're not there to just be PR for the club you've got to mm-hmm. tell it how it is and I said yeah I, he knew I was a big Cheltenham Town fan from, from a young boy and he said you know this is the time where you have to start uh, being objective um, and telling it how it is and I I think I've always tried to do that. And I always say to the students, as long as you're prepared to back up what you've written and you think it's fair, balanced, it's not a personal attack, and you're prepared to look somebody in the eye next time you see them after you've written it and defend what you've written, then that's fine. If you, you can't write something and go and hide away for months without seeing anyone, that's yeah, yeah, that's not a good sign. So as long as you're as long as you're happy with the the standards of journalism, the, the sort of the, the the accuracy of the facts. But there's no there's no doubt that as a local sports journalist, you want you want your team to do well because everything's easier when results are good, everyone's happier, people more people want to read about it. But also, you can't just you can't just disappear when things are bad, or you can't only write positive stuff when when things are clearly not great. So you've got to have that balance. But yeah. I think it's wanting wanting the club to do well, but also being willing to help help hold them to account when needed. Having that those relationships, that respect, that trust, like you said, that transparency. They know that I've got a job to do that's very different to the club PR and comms team and I think I've always tried to, to get that balance right even though most people you know everyone knows my, my feelings of the club mm. and the emotional attachment I have I'm not afraid to if needed well it hasn't been needed much recently has it with Michael Duff but no. if there have been struggles um, think of example of Martin Allen the reign of Martin Allen was a difficult sure. one I think I managed to maintain a relatively good relationship with him even though there was a lot of criticism from me which I thought was fair mm-hmm. um, and it's never well, very rarely, I would say, as it as it reached a, a a bad point where relationships is is really strained. It has happened. There has been ups and downs, but I think largely it's all about being realistic, being fair. Um, you know, you, Michael Duff will know that if Cheltenham started the season with ten consecutive defeats, I can't pretend everything is going brilliantly. You no. know, he, he knows he's very. Mike, Michael is very realistic, and he, he knows the game. He's been at the top level, and he's been at Southern Premier League level. He knows 
he's been all all over the levels as a player and he knows what it's like in terms of um, what the media need to do and what their job is to do. So I think, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating one and one that we spend a lot of time talking about in classes. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, you do do a good job of it because there's a tension in the modern media for sensationalism, isn't there? We hear the dreaded word clickbait. So I think being able to to not sensationalise things is part of that relationship. Yeah, clickbait is, a, is one that we've also debated. And if you put a headline on a story which is particularly intriguing that is that makes people want to click on it, that's exactly what a headline should do. Mm. That's what that's not that's not in my view at all clickbait. If you if you provide intrigue. You make people want to click to find out more. That's that's a good headline. What, what I think it click. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be realistic. It's got to be. You've got to give them what you're promising them. So if the headline is as you, you the word you use there is a good one, sensationalist. People mm. click on it, and then in the story, it's nothing to do with what they thought they were going to be reading or what the headline suggested. That's a terrible example of of, of bad clickbait, and that's what you've got to try and stay away from. But because if you do that too many times, people will just see through it and stop stop reading your stuff anyway. Mm. It's not worth it. You know, you lose credibility and lose trust. So it's delivering marketing. what the headline is going to yeah. say. It's almost marketing. It's interesting how journalism's evolved into that. You know, obviously you're you're in search of truth, but in terms of getting attention and eyeballs on your stories and amplifying your story correctly, as you say, on the theme that it's about. But it's it, it's borrowing some tactics from, I guess, the, the world of marketing. Yeah, and it's there's so much more now than just writing a good story because you could write the best story in the world, but if you don't put the right headline on it, nobody will find it. So there's a lot more. Obviously, you've got a certain amount of loyal audience that maybe read everything you write. But if you're trying to get as many eyeballs on it, as you said, on every article you write, it's it's getting the right headline. It's providing the right intrigue. It's using the right search terms. And selling your story now is a huge part of the writer's job, whereas that used to be purely down to the sub-editors of the newspaper. Yeah. That's now the individual writer's job to present their work online in the right way. And we spend, again, hours on end um, in the classroom looking at good examples of that and how to how to present work so to make it as um, easily discoverable as possible. Yeah, it's funny. I had a baptism of fire with with sensationalism. Kind of, it was the internet era, but it was still hard copy print was was predominant in around 2005. I was 23 year old. My first paid job was in Logan, Ohio, which is a rural town in the southeast of Ohio in the United States. And I had a, an editor who came in to save the paper in theory. It was actually a nice man, but was having his challenges with alcohol away from it. And I think was, was, it was quite a bullish character. And when I was covering the high school basketball team, which for people who know the States will know that in rural towns that are a long way from big cities, it's a big deal, high school sport, particularly American football, basketball and baseball. And I was covering the, the basketball team because it was a season that I, it was a basketball season when I'd joined the paper and he'd, he'd sort of take pull quotes that were maybe non-flattering around players and, and, and sort of, and he'd do the extreme around good performances and people would come to me and say, oh, he sent this off to his, his relatives in Colorado or whatever, it's fantastic. But then sort of anything negative, he would do the same. And then I ended up with the coach not speaking to me and all sorts of things like that. So it's, it's an interesting sort of dynamic and that, and that tension. And I was sort of aware of that with print, but with the internet, you can completely um, uh, you know, exponentially increase the sort of clickbait aspect to it and sens sensationalism so it's a, it's a good it's a good topic but it's on that note in headlines and, and attention grabbing obviously um as i say being a, an oasis fan of the 90s all your dreams are made jumped out at me as a, a lyric i think from what's the story morning glory what what was, the, what was the thinking of that title for the the book yeah i've got to give murray a lot of credit for that one because um he was heavily involved in the design for the manchester city match day program oh. everyone knows how how um how massive fans of Man City Oasis are. Um, so yeah. Murray Murray got in touch with a famous photographer who who kindly allowed the club to use a photo 
famous photo that he'd taken of the Gallagher brothers, which was the front cover of the Man City matchday programme, something a bit different. So that was really well received by Cheltenham fans and Man City fans. You could buy it online, even though nobody could actually come to the game. So that was the Oasis link with the Man City game in January. And then the players, um, because there was no fans there, we could hear the music coming out of the players' changing rooms at a lot of games. And a lot of the time they were getting changed in bars or porter cabins or tents. You know, that's one of the, you know, one of the many bizarre things that were going on last season due to COVID. So, that, you know, very rarely they're actually getting changed in the proper train, changing room. So we could hear the stereo and the song that they seemed to play a lot was Morning Glory from the album What's the Story, Morning Glory. Um, and, and that's obviously one of the lyrics from that, as you said. So that became sort of, it almost became an anthem for the, for the title win. And then they played it when the, as the team were lifting the trophy. As Ben Toza received the trophy of Andy Wilcox, the chairman at the time, uh, one of the first songs that we heard after that at the ground was Morning Glory. <laughs> And it just seemed, it seemed to encapsulate, it seemed to sum up the season quite well because all the dreams were made for, for Cheltenham Town that season with the Man City game being 1-0 up against Man City for 22 minutes and then winning their first title as a football league club. It, it, it seemed to sum it up quite nicely. So Murray, Murray Toms was the sort of, I would say, instigated the idea that it became almost the theme of the season for, for the whole of the, the club, really. Yeah, good for Murray. That Man City connection is big, isn't it? I can't believe... That City game, I think time has been warped in the, the sort of twists and turns of the pandemic and the various lockdowns. Is that, that was actually earlier this year, wasn't it? But have you have you got greater enlightenment about this, this, the importance of that game in terms of the context of the, the club's finances? How significant was it when you look back? Yeah, we we've had. A, I remember chatting about this quite soon after that, maybe around the time of the Man City game, about what we hoped it might help the club do, and it, I think it definitely took the pressure off because. Mm. You know, some some clubs, Cheltenham are in a very strong position when it all started, which helped because they're so sensibly run. They're, they're never going to uh, recklessly run and, and chase chase the dream. So they're spending beyond their means. They're very they're very sensibly run anyway. So they came from a good position. They had money in the bank from recent transfer bonus bonus cash and sell on fees and that sort of thing. But I think the the Man City game, which probably raised, I would say, um, having chatted to Paul Bentz, the commercial director, just afterwards, four to five hundred thousand in total. Wow. The FA Cup run, the TV money, the prize money, uh, all the extra merchandise. The t- yeah, live BBC coverage for the for the fourth round tie. Uh, I think it, you know, looking up towards towards half a million, if not half a million, that's massive because it just took the pressure off. And I'm sure mm. the budget this season, the budget this season isn't extravagant, but it didn't have to be slashed like a lot of clubs would have had to do because of the the, the financial security that the Man City game. Uh, it would have been even better if obviously the, the grounds had been full for all, the, all four rounds. But because yes. Cheltenham actually happened, happened to be drawn at home for all four games last season. Now this season they've had it the other way and they've had to go to uh, Gillingham and now AFC Wimbledon. So that's a lot a lot harder on the road. But last season all four rounds were at home. South Shields, uh, Mansfield, Crew, and well, Crew, Mansfield and then Man City. So yeah, that would have been even better. Everyone knows it was it was, it was a crying shame that there was nobody in the ground. But I think, it, I think it basically helped keep the wall from the door and take the pressure off. But it, it wasn't suddenly a case of Cheltenham had loads of money to spend on a big transfer fee or anything like that. It just, I think it just meant they could go into League One, mm. not worrying about where the next sort of wage bill was coming from. How, how far would £500,000 go in terms of the, the running costs of the club? Do you know how far that would take? Obviously, that's some Premier League players' wages, weekly wages. Yeah, well, it, yeah, small fry in terms of top-level football. But I think for Cheltenham, that I would say that is getting towards a third, just under a third of the annual wage bill. In, wow. you know, in one bonus chunk. So that includes wage staff bill, and players? Yeah, I, I think the the wage bill for the, for the football operations, so this probably doesn't include office staff, 
um, or sort of there's not that many of them anyway. You know, it's a very small operation off the pitch. But in terms of the football players, the staff, coaches, I think the, the, the budget would be around the 1.5 to 1.8 million mark oh, brilliant. Uh, this season. So to get 500,000 is completely unbudgeted cash. Obviously, they missed out on huge sums of cash last season, but that would have just meant, like I said, I, I think that would have stopped them having to absolutely slash the budget this season. You never want to get promoted and have to cut the budget, do you? So... <laughs> um, but they, they would definitely they definitely deserve credit anyway for the financial position they they were in at the start of the pandemic because they did have a very strong base to work from and I think the club deserve a lot of credit for that. But cup runs often, if you look back at Cheltenham's history, they often combine a good FA Cup run with either a promotion or a playoff appearance or a playoff final appearance. Mm. They normally go hands in hands. I think that's partly obviously you've got half decent teams and you get to the third or fourth round of the FA Cup, and also the momentum that gives you halfway through the season to then kick on and and um, once you are at the cup go on and get the job done in terms of promotion it was just a it was just a brilliant achievement all round and arguably as I said earlier I think arguably yeah. the greatest season in the club's history there's certainly a strong claim for that yeah vociferous agreement from the duck in the background there as well it's a feisty, feisty character <laughs> there's about 50 ducks oh, about no, 50 ducks one. only, only no. one of them is, is is making all the noise so apologize right. for that but um, it's, uh, yeah, it's male, quiet at the moment female duck I know the female <laughs> listeners would say that's probably male duck um, what what is um yeah, that, that is incredible that they've, they've done that with the finances involved and, and how they're run because, it's, I mean, there's generally so much tension and incentive and everyone has this in everyday life about stretching for a bigger mortgage, stretching for a bigger car, better car. But it, they, they, and in football, that is such a palpable pressure, isn't it? Because the nature of the competition, there are going to be so many winners that to be resolute and not to overspend, it's, it deserves some credit, doesn't it? Because it's not the norm in football and, and in society. You, you need a manager that understands. You need a manager that isn't going to try and break the bank and keep putting pressure on to, to, to spend beyond their means. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the manager asking, but I think there's got to be a realism as well. And I think Michael Duff, having spent so long as a player at the club, just gets that. Um, so he, he knew what he wasn't going to come into a club with a big budget in League Two, let alone League One. So I think that's the first thing you need. An understanding manager isn't going to get you know throw his toys out of the crown when he can't spend hundreds of thousands of pounds on a, on a striker. So it's trying to get value, value for your money. Um, and, and yeah, I think that there has been one time in the past where Cheltenham have overstretched themselves. It was during the Martin Allen reign. That's not all Martin Allen's fault because he, he could only give, him, give what was mm. spend what was given to him, sorry. But in, in 08 or 09, it was in League One. It was, it was a desperate attempt to stay in League One and they lost 800 grand in a year Whoa. just on, just basically wasted it on, on loans and expensive players and putting loan players up in expensive hotels and, all got a bit out of hand and that caused untold stress for Paul Baker as the chairman at the time. He managed to stave off just about administration at the time. But that's the only time I think, in certainly in the last 30, 40 years, where Cheltenham have been in real crisis financially and they, they came out of it thanks to Paul Baker's commitment to, to turning it around because he, he probably felt that he was partly responsible for it. Mm. Um, since then, um, the financial director, Clive Gowing, always always gets a lot of credit and I think he deserves it for the way that he runs it. I'm sure he drives people mad at times saying no when they want to spend a bit of money. But I would I would much rather, if I was a fan of a football club, have a financial director that's very re uh, reluctant to say no than one that's just spread, splashing out money left, right and centre. So I think that, you know, Michael Dust recruitment has been a great example of that. They've got, they've picked up free agents, really good young loans that won't be costing much with re good relationships with the bigger clubs and, and also getting more out of the players that were already here rather than every time you lose a few games, bombing half the squad out and trying to bring in a new team because that, that's very expensive as well. So I think he's, he's improved players that he inherited rather than sort of trying to rebuild the whole squad from scratch. He's obviously put his mark on it, but there are players 
There's loads of, of examples of players that you will have enjoyed watching. Chris Hussey, Sean mm. Long, uh, Ben, yeah. ben Toza before he left, Will Boyle, Scott Linders, um, Connor Thomas. They're all at the club before Michael took over. And they, I would say they've all got much better uh, or they've all, he's got the best out of them since he took over when some of them maybe looked like they were on their way out before he came in. Yeah, better human beings as, as well. And it's interesting looking back on that nature of improvement when you look at the Manchester City game as a highlight of the book, clearly some wonderful pictures of that match and other matches, but just looking through it, and I've, I've been lucky enough to, to, to have a sort of copy of it, it was it was the nature of the, the performances, they're very narrow wins, weren't they? Let's talk about marginal gains in sport and fine margins. Is that is that one of the takeaways? Probably the League Two winning season. People joining the podcast, I'm not sure who Cheltenham Town are. They're a team that won the fourth tier uh, title in England last year, up to the League One. I think for the third time in their history, John will confirm that. But it's it's something that was pretty historic to win the title for the first time at that level, and it it wasn't achieved by blowing teams away. John, is that one of the things you look back at through the book? And I suppose it was just it was greater than the sum of its parts. I suppose is what you'd say about the team. Yeah, you're spot on with the, the three three times now they've gone up to League One. So this is their fifth uh, fifth season in total at that level. Um, every every previous one has been a battle against relegation. So obviously that will be, if Michael can keep them clear of the, the relegation scrap, that'll be the first time that's happened yeah. since since Cheltenham have been formed in 1887. Um, <laughs> but in terms of the, the, the results, you're right. Um, particularly after the Man City game, where Cheltenham frustrated a strong City team for such a long time, they, they felt that if they scored first, that was it. They could shut the game down. Now, they, they weren't really negative. They, they played nice passing possession football, but they felt like with the back five or back three, three, five, two formation, with the wing backs joining in at times, they could they could kill a game off if they were one, two, one up, two nil up, yeah. one nil up. There, there was a couple of exceptions to that. And funnily enough, both against Tranmere Rovers, they thrashed Tranmere three nil away quite early in the season with all three goals coming in the first half. And then they absolutely um, thrashed them four nil at home over the Easter weekend, which was probably the best all-round performance of the league season with Callum Wright scoring a volley, which was goal of the season. So there yeah. were a couple of drubbing. There were a couple of drubbings in there. And they also had one heavy defeat at Barrow, um, where it all went wrong. But very, very rarely did well. Only once did they lose two in a row. Mm. That was if they did lose one. If they did get edged out in a game, they always seemed to respond quite well. And they did grind a lot out, like you said. They went to Cambridge. I remember really cagey one. Cambridge was top of league at the time. Sean Long scored a header from a from a, a far post header from across, and they just saw it out brilliantly and, and I, I never felt worried that they were going to get the defence was going to be breached they just got that one goal and then they, they closed it down on the sort of quite a tense night at Cambridge which was another one of those big results that took them towards the title so they were solid well organised that's what Michael Duff was all about last season they didn't have a prolific goal scorer um, the goals have been actually funnily enough they found goals quite easy to come by relatively easy to come by this season in League One but they found them harder to keep, keep them out of the other end yeah. But they did. They didn't. They weren't prolific last season. They were just very well organised, well drilled, uh, good possession team, and goals were chipped in from all over the team. But there wasn't anyone really sort of banging in twenty goals or anything like that. So it was, yeah, the, the ability to shut games down and and restrict the opposition in terms of decent chances was the key, I think, to the title win. John, is the book still available? Is it play, people can get it, and where can they get it? Yeah, we sold. I think we sold about five hundred now, which we're really pleased with. But there are some left in the club shop at Johnny Rock Stadium in Cheltenham. So you can either go in if you are locally based and, and pick one up or you can order them on, online via the club shop online. So ctfc.com forward slash shop. I think that you can you can order one on there. Um, we, we, we sold them for £20 as part of the crowdfunder. So if you, if you committed your £20, you got sent a book. You could have your photo in there um, as, a, as a, you know, a memento. 
And because we, we had to reward those that helped with the crowdfunder, the, the, what the remaining copies are now 25, but I, I, in my personal unbiased opinion, it's still a bargain. <laughs> as the uh, as the author and the architect yeah absolutely um how much money did the crowdfunding raise last year to keep the club going the the money we raised from the book um all got pumped into the club to help subsidize uh, kids ticket prices for three home games recent home games so we felt again it was, it was a joint effort between murray richard joyce and myself but murray with his crowdfunder expertise definitely sort of was able to guide us but we felt like no fans been able to go last season. Awful people stuck at home, not being able to, you know, and people also yeah. losing a lot of income. We felt that yeah. being able to get as many young, hopefully regular fans of the future in for, for a pound, the three home games um, went to coincide with the release of the book was was the best way to put the money. None of us made any money out of it ourselves. It's all gone straight back into the club to subsidise the ticket prices. And I think we were able to put in something like 5,000 after we covered the cost of the book and everything like that. We were able to put in about 5,000 to to help those kids um, mm. get the discounted tickets. Hopefully some of them will, will, will enjoy it and come back for more. But it, you know, it is expensive for a family to go and watch a game. So at least for those three games, people could come in for a pound and see what it's all about and see what, what a good team Michael's put together. And so that, that was the, the, the fallout from the book, really. Yeah, brilliant. Well, good for you. It's really, really generous and you're not, not bolstering your own pockets, which is very um, magnanimous and, and philanthropic of you. On that note, though, just as a, to digress slightly on the local economy, what's your read on it? I know it seems quite vibrant. Central Cheltenham, there's an ice rink. I'm going to go there with my daughter and wife later today on, on Friday and, and, and have an ice skate. And it seems to be there's a lot of energy, a lot of outdoor bars that weren't there pre-pandemic. Seems to be quite a positive legacy. And footfall, I think, is good in the, in the town centre. But what's your read on, on how people are getting on in the local area? Yeah, I think it's been pleasingly resilient. You know, I think it's bounced back well. I think when I walked through the brewery last night, there was loads of people there. Everything was busy, all the new bars and restaurants and uh, cinema, gym, everything. Yeah, there was a lot of, it was very bustling. Yeah, the, the lights are officially being turned on on Saturday, uh, which will be great. You've got the Literature Festival. We, we, I milled around there. You know, that was a great event. It's great to see Montpellier Gardens and, and every, everyone, all the tents up and everything. And some huge names come into the town. So I think, Michael, I think the yeah. town is... Yeah, Michael was the biggest, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, Michael yeah, Schmeichel. I said Schmeichel, but you're Michael. Oh, Duff. sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah Schmeichel. was probably the second biggest sports person <laughs> on the show after Michael Duff and, and Will Boyle. But um, yeah, we we uh, I think overall we're quite lucky in Cheltenham. I think it's you know I think it's recovered well, and I I don't see it as being a a major struggle. I know I, know, I don't want to generalise too much. I know some businesses are probably going through hard times, but I think in general mm. the town is. As, you know, we've, we've got people back at the racing so we had the November meet that brought a lot of people in nothing compared to the, the March festival still a decent number of fans coming into the town to watch the November meet at the race course you've got uh, football fans back so there'll be a lot of Shrewsbury fans coming tomorrow we've had Sheffield Wednesday fans coming Ipswich fans coming you know all bolstering the town's economy so to bring that back to football having a League One team and fans back in certainly will help local businesses restaurants bars, pubs in the vicinity of the grounds and it's all good for putting the town on the map you know, it's not all, yeah. it's not ever going to be known just for football, Cheltenham, is it? But I think it's it all helps with um, bringing people to visit. Hopefully, they'll see what a nice town it is. And yeah, I think it's all it, it seems pleasingly positive as as things have started to gain momentum again after the the lockdowns. Yeah, absolutely. You say known for horse racing and, and known for the, the various festivals, literature, jazz festivals, science festival, lot lot going on. I was part of the um, 
relatively smaller scale, but I think hopefully we'll bring back the Cheltenham Wellbeing Festival next year, which will be be good to get some doctors, sports people in, and uh, health and wellbeing people. So uh, watch this space for that. And it's great that people are getting back out there. And I just wonder whether a, a trend that we've noted in, in terms of online and digital spending might be reversed. People kind of, I guess, have renewed enthusiasm and appetite for going into the town centre. And certainly it seems busy in Cheltenham, which is fantastic. You said, John, that the book documents what could be arguably the greatest season in, in Cheltenham Town's history. What would they need to do this season? It's 16th in the table, don't they? What would they need to achieve this year to, to maybe, I suppose, go beyond that to, to set new levels? Yeah, I suppose that then it would come down to a matter of opinion whether finishing... So if Cheltenham finish where they are now, that will be their highest ever finish. So the highest ever finish so far was 2006-07 under John Ward. They finished 17th. Mm. in League One. Uh, Steve Cottrell never managed Cheltenham in League One because he got them promoted to League One and, and then left to take ah. over at Stoke. So that would have been interesting if he'd stayed, how they'd have got on in League One. But I think if, if Cheltenham were to... So they're still in the FA Cup. They're through to the second round to face FC Wimbledon. So there's the potential of another brilliant cup run. They're 16th. There's the potential they could finish in the highest ever position. So it's, it's all about opinion, really. I mean, some people would say the, the season where Cheltenham won the League Two playoffs, got to the fifth round of the FA Cup, under Steve Cottrell in 02, which when Michael was in the team, that that could be argued as being Cheltenham's greatest ever season because it was the first time they got to the last 16 of the FA Cup, the only time they got to the last 16 yeah. of the FA Cup and the first time they've got that that step up to League One. Um, there is an, as, as other, other contenders as well. There's the FA Trophy winning season in 98 at Wembley in front of um, around about 18, 19 Cheltenham fans, 1,000 Cheltenham fans at Wembley, <laughs> which was incredible. Um, yeah, that was... Like, like the whole town seems to be getting behind the club there. And then there's the 99 conference win, the 05-06 season, which was promotion under John Ward, the fourth round of the FA Cup against Newcastle. So there's, there's, Cheltenham fans have been quite lucky, really, over the last 20, 30 years with the amount of success they've had. But I think last season, because it was the first title win, and Man City was undoubtedly the biggest, highest-profile team, the most expensively assembled team, the highest-profile, the highest-rated coach they've ever seen at the ground. Um, I know Michael Duff, having played in a lot of the success under Steve Cottrell, he, he regards last season, and I think it's a genuine one, not just because he was, because he was manager. I think he, he does regard last season as the, the greatest achievement when there was a pandemic going on. Yeah. To, to, and no fans there. So to get that many points and win, win the title um, was, was an incredible achievement. I know, I know it was the same for all clubs, but Cheltenham would, would, were definitely bottom half budget, arguably, I think, around... 16th, 17th highest budget in the league. So to win the league, go up to League One, nobody would have expected um, that to happen. So yeah, I think it's there's strong claims that it was the best ever. Absolutely. Remind us of the context as well, because people listening will know that, or maybe be aware that professional sport, professional football goes back to the 19th century, but professional sport for Cheltenham footballers has what been 24, 25 years? Is it something like that? Yeah, they formed in 1887, um, 112 years of non-league football. So they were in, most of that was in the Southern League and then only, only, only a total of nine years in that period in the National League, which is the one league below the Football League. They won the, the conference, as it was called then, now National League, which is the fifth tier of English football in 99. So that's when the club went from being semi-pro. So the players would all have trades, have jobs. Uh, Michael Duff at the time was a full-time trainee, but all the senior players would have had trades, jobs, office jobs, uh, fitness training jobs, all that sort of stuff, yeah. window makers, uh, carpenters. And then they, they were able to give up those jobs to turn professional in 99. And the club since then, so since 99, has had a full-time professional football league club with the exception of one season where they, they dropped down back to the National League. And um, Gary Johnson, 15, 16 seasons, bounced straight back. 
which was vital because having a football league club in your town makes a huge difference. And I spoke to Steve Cotter on the phone on Thursday evening about his return with Shrewsbury Town on Saturday. And he said that the thing that gives him the most pride is that he'll be coming back to Cheltenham for a league, league one game. And the fact that there's an academy uh, in Cheltenham where players can pursue their professional football dreams. Whereas when he was a youngster, Cheltenham were always a half-decent non-league club, but they were never a massive non-league club. And they certainly didn't have a professional pathway. They were all semi-pro. And if you wanted to make it as a footballer, you'd have to leave, travel, go, go all over the country. So that's, that's what he feels is his biggest legacy. Although he was keen to say it was a massive effort from everyone at the club. He drove it. He was the driving force behind it. And the club is now, you know, it's, I would say it's an established, well-established football league club up in the third tier. But yeah, for the vast majority of the history, they've been a non-league club. And for a lot of that, they were nowhere near the football league. Mm. It's a big weekend, isn't it? Steve Cottrell coming back for, for what he did for the club. He's a, a Cheltenham person and yeah, had his battle with, with COVID, which are really sobering, actually, really ill and, and in hospital. He's, he's back. Is that been an emotional afternoon for, for Cheltenham diehards? How do you see that? Is, that? is he still remembered very fondly? Yeah, I think he's, he's he's still number one in terms of influential figures in the club's history. He should, you know, he's, he's up. He's definitely most people. I mean, even the younger fans who wouldn't have been around when he was manager will know, will understand the, the mark he left on the club. He's the reason why Cheltenham has got a football league club now. Mm. He, there's been a lot of success since, but he paved the way for for it all really. And he, I think it will be an emotional one. He's never been back for a league game before. He's been back for a EFL Trophy game at Bristol City, which was slightly lower crowds and he's been back for a couple of friendlies with Burnley and Bristol City. He's been, we, we uh, saw him at Notts County when he was manager there, they beat Cheltenham 5-0 at Meadow Lane to win the title when they had Kasper Schmeichel in goal. So he has taken on Cheltenham before, but this would be the first time he's been back for a competitive league game. And just the, the brilliant story really is that he's going to be up against Michael Duff, who he helped so much as a player, gave, yeah. gave him his big chance at Cheltenham as a player, gave him his chance at Burnley. As Duff has said, rightly, Duff also did well for Cottrell. You know, was a great player for Cottrell, helped Cottrell's teams win promotions and win trophies. But I think he just needed that opportunity that he'd been rejected by Nottingham Forest, Darlington and Swindon. Cheltenham was the only club that really gave him that chance. And he certainly took it and he, he went on to have a great career. So it's the, it's the, the story of those two. Now, they'll, they, they both played it down. They both said when the game starts, it's all about three points. Of course it is. You know, that's, it's all about three points at stake in League One. But okay, for Cheltenham yeah. fans... Whatever age you are, whether you remember the Cottrell days, whether you, you weren't uh, around and you, you've just heard about him, I think everyone will, who sees him tomorrow will, will understand what a massive impact he had on the club. An indelible mark. And I think when they do re rebuild the main stand at Cheltenham, it should be named after him, in my and opinion. It, and it, in the making of Mike, Michael Duff, which you may get a stand named after him in due course as well, what what is what are his influences from what you've seen? Because I've been with him when he's had phone calls from Sean Dyche, who was his manager, when he was a player in the Premier League for Burnley. And I think he's been keen to recognise Dyche's role as a mentor because Michael went on to coach at the academy set up in, in Burnley as well. What similarities, differences are there between him and, and Steve Cottrell, who was the man who managed him when, when Cheltenham got up to the Football League? Yeah, I see a bit of both of those, those figures. But I think Michael only had a player-to-manager relationship with Steve Cottrell, whereas he had a, a coach. He started coaching under Dyche and played under Dyche later on in his career when he was getting towards the end and he knew that he was going to take the step into, first of all, under-18s coaching, then under-23s. And then he just started helping out with Dyche's first team before he got the Cheltenham job. So there's a huge amount of Sean Dyche in the way Michael Duff goes about his business. But there's definitely some Cottrell. Now, Cottrell said that he used to play head, head tennis with Michael in the car park at one road. And he used to, Michael used to hate losing and he used to get really angry. And Cottrell said that he loved it and he, he wanted to beat him even more. And then he said he once got to a day where, where Duff started beating him 
and he thought, well, I've done my job now. You know, he, he had that resilience. <laughs> he, he came, he, he practiced and he tried and he, he perfected it and he started beating me. And it, it was that will to win, that determination. I mean, I think Michael is more even or measured and a, a more a more level temperament. He's passionate, Steve Michael. Isn't he? Yeah, very passionate. Yeah, he, he, he's, he's the most passionate man uh, about football that I've ever met. Uh, but that's not to say Michael isn't passionate, but he's, he's very much after a game, you often can't tell you wouldn't be able to tell whether Cheltenham won or lost the game. He's that, he's that stable, which I think is massively important as a manager. Um, he doesn't write all players off after every defeat and he doesn't tell them they're the best players in the world when they win a couple of games. Sure. But I think, but he's got that. I've never met anyone in football that, that hates losing as much as Steve Cottrell, but I think Michael is getting quite close, or is up there in terms of yeah. that, that, that hatred of losing. I think um, the, 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 the attention to detail the, the be, being able to spot something in a game, which very, very few people would have noticed, tweak it, and then suddenly the whole complexion of the game changes is something that Cottrell was particularly good at. And I think Duff has got that ability, which a lot of managers just don't have. They're, they're, they might be great motivators. They might be great uh, in the transfer market. But just being able to spot a little tactical detail during the first half of the heat of the moment, change it, and then the whole game will turn on its head. Is something yeah. that I that's another reason why I think Duff is bound for bigger and better things in terms of top level management because he's got that eye for just moving somebody a small distance on the pitch or changing a shape slightly. He, he has absolutely got that in his armory, and the Cottrell had that as well. So well, that's what I would say is, is some of the similarities. Yeah, that's, fast, that's fascinating actually. As you say, that Steve Cottrell's very much a manager now in League One with Shrewsbury, but Michael Duff in a different era and different generation and culture of, of player and perhaps that importance of an emotional keel is, is maybe more widely appreciated in this generation. But you mentioned Michael Duff's potential, his aptitude to, to go up. What have you heard about any inquiries, any interest in him? I know the Barnsley job in the Championship would have been a difficult job, wouldn't it? It came and went in recent weeks. Has there been any any sort of mention of Michael being contacted by, well, I think there's a consensus that it would be a a championship club. I've I've not heard. There's the, the, well, I'm pretty confident there's been no formal approaches to Cheltenham Town for for any jobs for Michael Duff. But he's starting to get linked. He's always in the betting. He was he was up there in the betting for the Cardiff job, although he was never one of the top mm. two or three favourites. I, I think he was considered by MK Dons for the MK John Dons job when that came up. I think we're getting to the stage now this season where a lot of managers are going aren't we so a few have gone already and a few more will go in the next few weeks when things you know teams yeah. react to not having particularly great starts to the season so that's the big worry really I, I've always had this attitude um, that Charlton fans need to enjoy it while it lasts with Michael Duff because he's not going to do uh, an Alex Ferguson at Charlton he's not going to be there for, for 25 30 years he's going to come in he's already transformed the club's fortunes in, in the first couple of years and he will I'm absolutely convinced of it. Get get that opportunity relatively soon. Yeah, where, where that which club which club he thinks is right for him, I don't know. But I think he, he, it's a matter of when rather than if, in yeah. my opinion. I know you're emotionally connected to it, but there's prevailing theories, aren't there? Contrasting theories. One would be it's never going to get better than he is now, 16th in League One. But another theory could be that if he if he rode out the season and finished what 12th, 13th in League One, unprecedented for Cheltenham Town in terms of position, then he would be in a stronger position. <laughs> maybe get a better job because I get the sense from Michael and you'll probably know more on this that he wouldn't jump into a crisis club with, with questionable direction of ownership would he I think he's, he's considered and perhaps to be in a better position in summer in terms of getting time to work with players and establish something at a new club 
yeah, I think it's he doesn't need to jump at the first the first job. So he will consider it very carefully, just like he did when he was a player. He he, he waited and he he had a lot of clubs interested in him, and some moves almost happened and they didn't, and then he ended up going to Burnley, which turned out to be a a shrewd move for him. And I think. He will think long and hard before jumping. It will have to be the right club. The geography will come into it because his family is very settled in Cheltenham. His kids go to school in yeah. Cheltenham. His wife and all their family are from Cheltenham. So I think there will be a lot a lot of things to consider. But uh, also the ambition of the club, you know, the, the potential of the club. He might, he might be tempted by a club that's massively underachieving, but he thinks he might be able to take them up a couple of levels or he might just get an offer at a club so big that it's just too good to turn down. But I think he's in a, such a good a place with Cheltenham. He won't need to jump at the first opportunity that he gets offered. So Cheltenham have had this before many times. They had it with Cottrell, mm. who, who got offered loads of jobs before he eventually took the Stoke job. They had it with John Ward, who was chased by a couple of clubs, ended up going to Carlisle um, for, for a six-figure compensation fee in, in 2007. They had wow. it with Mark Yates, who was wanted by Blackpool and Crawley when he was at Cheltenham, and he, he stayed through and it ended up getting sacked. So, you know, you, sometimes you have to weigh it up because, yeah, it's, it's a two-way thing, loyalty, isn't it? And um, would he get sacked Cheltenham. at Cheltenham? Well, a lot, a lot would have to go wrong very quickly for, for Michael Duff to ever get sacked at Cheltenham. I can't, I can't ever see that happening. But yeah. if you know, it could happen, but I, I, I don't think, I don't think he will outstay his sort of natural period at the club as a manager. I think he will be fighting off clubs for, for opportunities, you know, in the next months and years if he if he does stay at Cheltenham. And how do you feel about things, John? Going beyond the. The, the results which have seen them 16th how confident are you that they're going to kick on and how confident have you and how impressed have you been with the the adaption to league one and, and how maybe it compared to those previous two times they're promoted yeah i think that they they look better prepared to stay out of the, the mire this season i think they've the home form has been particularly solid which is obviously massively important they they've, they've got a good result away at charlton but it's been it's been the home form that's you know they got they got thrashed five minutes Sunderland and they've had a couple of other beats away but that most of the disappointing performances have been away from home. They've had really good results at home against the likes of Ipswich, the Oxford at home. Drawing with Sheffield Wednesday was a very respectable result. Yeah. So the home home form will be enough to keep them keep them clear of it. And I think just the the even temper temperament of Michael means that they won't get bombed out if they you know they lose a couple of games. I think that's very important. That stability and the loyalty between the players and the manager you know each other so well. The ones that have come in this season have all, well, the vast majority, although there's been a couple of injuries, most of the ones that have been playing regularly have made a, a positive impact. Yeah. Uh, and, and the loans have been good as well. So, I just, I, yeah, I think it's all positive. And I think Cheltenham probably, they might feel they could easily be a little bit higher than the 16th. But I just think at the moment, he's very careful to say, you know, we haven't cracked it. We're not we're not safe. We're looking down. Cheltenham are only five points in the relegation zone, we've got, we've got to remember. But I, I just feel very calm and, and confident that there's not going to be a last minute, like last day scrap against the drop like there has been in the past or relegation on the last day, which has happened to Cheltenham as well in League One. So, yeah, I'm fairly confident, obviously, that there'll be a little bit of leeway in January for, for signings as well. I don't think they're at breaking point budget-wise at the moment. So I think they could be strengthening. And there's a couple of very good loan players to come back, Adam Wright and Taylor Perry, that are both going to be back in the mix in the next couple of weeks or months. So yeah, I think it's all. It's it, it, again. There's no denying it. It's one of the best teams Cheltenham have ever, ever had. There's no doubt about that. Brilliant. Well, yeah, enjoy it, and, and hopefully, you know, it will have a, a wonderful conclusion with Michael Duff whenever he does get that opportunity to, to maybe move up in the period. As you say, you know, have to take the opportunity as, as a manager, and it's just a magical time because I think even going back to the 1990s, I think I watched the Ipswich game, went down to Wadden Road for that, and, and just seeing Sheffield Wednesday come. You remember Ipswich being in the Premier League with the 
likes of Chris Kawamia and Jason Dezel. And, and you, you remember Sheffield Wednesday with that great, you know, team that reached two cup finals in 93 that were a Premier League established team, entertaining team, Waddle and David Hurst and Graham Hyde and people like that. And you think that, that Cheltenham are mixing. I know that those clubs have fallen on relative tough times from, from where they were in the 1990s, but still it's, it's a great, it's a great time. John, I know you've got to go for, for a lecture, but thank you for, for coming in. Um, the, the, the final thought is the clubhouse for the book. You know, all your dreams are made. Brilliant. So yeah, if anyone wants to uh, pick one up, it's there in the club shop or uh, have a look on the website. But I think it's been, it's, you know, Alan Franklin, I'll give a mention as well, Ed, he's the photographer who took all the pics oh, in the nice. book. So he's, he's done an absolutely brilliant job with the photos. You know, it's based on, there's not a huge amount of text in there. It's, it's, it's all, the, the images tell a lot of the stories. I, I've written the words just to, just to summarise all the key, ma all, all the matches. Mm. But it's, it's a good team effort and I think we're, we're quite, we're quite pleased with it. But most importantly, we feel like we did a bit of good in terms of the kids' ticket prices. So it's been a, been a good success story overall really that all your dreams are made yeah good for you i think it's even more powerful because it was the covid era where fans weren't allowed in that actually that some of the photos are even more powerful because perhaps people wouldn't have been able to, to witness them before or certainly weren't viscerally able to to be part of it john thank you very much speak to you soon brilliant cheers ed always a pleasure thank you Great to get John Palmer's insights. As I say, it looks a fantastic book documenting a special season, an historic season for a club that's been around since 1887, but seems to be going from strength to strength. And if you are listening to this and you're local to Cheltenham, may get the sense as well that John and I have that it's an area with lots of energy on the up, as they say, seemingly helped, I presume, by people migrating from London, although I spent a lot of my youth in this area. I lived in London for a period and was born in London, and I think... A lot of people seem to be coming this way to the Cotswolds, generally the region of, of England, but Cheltenham in particular. So uh, good to have uh, people here and, and a vibrance at the moment when I think globally the economy is a result of the pandemic are under such stress. But wish Cheltenham Town the best of luck against Shrewsbury and their old boss, Steve Cottrell. Romantic meeting of Steve Cottrell against Michael Duff. It'd be interesting to watch that situation as well with Michael as he continues to, to get success at Cheltenham, particularly in the context of their history, if he does keep them in League One and gets higher than that 17th position, which I know he's very cognizant of that being the best performance for Cheltenham historically in, in League One, the division they're in right now. Uh, thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. If you could uh, rate it on iTunes, mention it to a friend, whatever that may be, put it on social media. But I think those person-to-person -person refer referrals are always powerful, aren't they? I find that anyway in terms of how I try and navigate through the myriad of millions of, of podcasts that are out there. Uh, thank you to the sponsors as well for supporting me, allowing me to invest a little bit of energy and time into this over the past 18 months or so. Bang Olufsen of, of Cheltenham and Serene AV, specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations. Check out Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham online and social media as well. And through Serene AV, can source you whatever equipment suits your vision, your budget, not just Bang Olufsen's world-renowned quality products so thank you for listening to the podcast if you're looking to optimize your immunity at cytoplan.co.uk thank you for their association with the podcast you can go there c-y-t-o-p-l-a-n.co.uk and at checkout once you've uh, selected your supplements the discount code is draper10r my last name d-r-a-p-e-r all capital letters numerals one zero in the capital letter r i am ed draper a sports broadcaster in the uk if you're new to the podcast Appreciate having you here. Hope you enjoy it. Let us know. If not, write a review. Get in touch. Uh, hello at drapermedia.co.uk if you want any suggestions, any recommendations. Uh, be fantastic. But thank you for listening to the podcast and have a wonderful weekend. 
and uh, and good week to come. We've got an interesting uh, podcast guest coming out, a guy called Ed Gates, another Ed, who is the creator of something called Creatine Coffee, which I've been taking for a couple of weeks, and it's a nice coffee, and it's got creatine and lots of caffeine in it. So a good pre-workout drink. We discussed that. That's from uh, Monday. Goodbye. For-